Differentiate has been a study through this Sermon on the Mount. It is this unique and extended sermon from Jesus that really calls us into a different way of being human. It is a sermon that we might say is full of really practical ways of living, but with some challenging kingdom truths. No other book of the Bible seems to captivate these teachings and make them as central as Matthew does. Matthew really makes the Sermon on the Mount central to everything Jesus was, did, and preached. And it is essential for that reason that we explore, know, and look to understand these passages from Matthew so that we can make them central to our faith as well. The series Differentiate is our seven-week study through a collection of Jesus' teachings that are found in the book of Matthew that challenge, remind, and equip us to live in a differentiated way in our neighborhoods and in our spheres of influence. So far, what we've looked at is how we should be differentiated by our commitment to truth-telling, to not holding revenge grudges, to not uh, hating our enemies, but rather loving them. Uh, We should be differentiated by our integrity, and we should be differentiated by the way we don't focus on money and stuff. This week we talk about worry. It's only fitting that Matthew in Jesus' uh, Ma- Matthew records Jesus' teaching in this order, and that worry follows his teaching on money. Not only do most of us never think we have enough money, I think usually money is the number one thing that is always on our mind. It is the thing we worry and stress about over in life, probably more than anything else. In fact, maybe it was said best by hip-hop star Snoop Dogg when he said, with my mind on my money and my money on my mind, right? We always are stressed and worried. And I understand only half of you got that reference. We, We have money on our mind and it worries us. Our mind actually worries about a lot of things. And money is just one of those major things. So in Matthew, 5, uh, Matthew 6, 25 through 34, we are going to find Jesus talking about worry. This morning, once again, we find ourselves on the mountainside. Sea of Galilee is just below us. Jesus sits on a rock a little further up from the hill. In our minds, we are still processing his teaching about not living in pursuit of money and stuff. In fact, as he's talking, we're kind of only barely paying attention because we begin to sense this anxiety rising up in us as we think about having to let go of our stuff. It worsens as we turn our thinking to our wallets and our pocketbooks. It's in that moment we suddenly begin to hear Jesus talk and teach on worry. We might even wonder, did he just read my thoughts? I mean, could he hear my heart beating faster with anxiety? How did he know that I struggle with stress and anxiety? Jesus begins his teaching with these words. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. His opening line shocks us as we sit on the hill. What does it mean we're not supposed to worry about our lives? After all, isn't our life a temple? 
And now you're telling me not even to worry about my body? And a minute ago, you told me I'm not allowed to have wealth. And if I don't have wealth, then the only thing I have is my health. And now you're telling me I'm not even allowed to worry about that. Now, I think all of us worry from time to time. I think all of us worry about a lot of different things. It was the same for this audience that's gathered with Jesus on the mountainside. Worry is an everyday human condition. Corey Ten Bloom, boom, famous for matching, uh, making watches and helping Jews escape in World War II. You probably only knew about that latter part, but she was also a famous watchmaker. She said this in her book, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Now in Jesus' day, the poor had a hard time living. It would have felt impossible for them to think that they weren't supposed to think about these basic things. Jesus is speaking to some people that have really hard lives, harder than most of us can imagine. In his time, most of their day, hour by hour, 12 out of the 24 hours, was spent on just trying to get enough food and resources to live to the next day. Now, we all have eight-hour jobs and We still find time to play on Facebook, watch TV. But in Jesus' day, most of their waking hours was spent on just trying to get enough food and resources for the next day. Now, I realize a lot of us complain about living paycheck to paycheck. And there's many other of us in this room that don't even know that's reality. However, these people were trying to live day to day. They would go through these long seasons of famine where food was scarce. They had to surrender their money to overtaxation, and when they couldn't do that, Rome would come in and take family members, they would take houses, they would take land, they would take your donkey, they'd take whatever you had to settle your debt. And you know what? When they take your loved ones who work your fields, when they take your house where you live in, and when they take your donkeys in which you use to work in the fields, suddenly it gets even harder to live day to day. Now, the rich were around them still flaunting what they had. We looked at that last week. And so the poor Jesus' audience was really just longing for a little bit of glitz and glamour so they could survive. All their culture saw wealth as a sign of God's favor. And last week we saw how Jesus took away money and possessions both as a focus but also as a spiritual indicator. He told them not to even work on achieving those things. However, now he's going to tell them something even bigger. He's going to tell them to not even worry about what they eat or what they wear. This would be a bitter pill to swallow for people overwhelmed and trying to live in poverty. They worried about these basic needs because it meant they could live or die. I imagine the majority of us actually struggle with worry or anxiety. If I ask for a raise of hands of how many of you struggle with worry or anxiety, I imagine that most of us would have our hands in the air, or less uh, you are lying to yourself or afraid to admit it to someone around you. We all struggle with this. An online survey recently surveyed 2,000 individuals. What they found was 42% of those people they interviewed were unhappy with their lives at that moment. And when we're not content with our lives, we worry about a lot of things. Even if we are content with our lives, we worry. Certainly, some of us worry more than others. Some of us go through seasons of depression and struggle in which we worry more than we do in other times. However, overall, 
we probably don't look any different than those on the street, in our neighborhood, or those we work with. We worry, they worry, we were both overcome by stress, and they're stressed, and we're stressed. And this online survey then went on to ask these 2,000 people what they really worry and find themselves stressed about. They came up with the top 20 list. They pretty much all agreed on 20 things. Getting old. Worried about savings future and their financial future. Low energy levels. That's what coffee's for. Their diet. Financial credit card debts. Job security. Wrinkles. Aging appearance. Physique. Paying rent or your mortgage. Feelings of general unhappiness. Finding a new job or career. If they're attractive or not. Whether or not their partner still loves them. Finding the right partner in life. Worrying about a family member that they've had a falling out with. If they're a good parent or not. If they're making the right choices as a a father or a mother. Meeting work targets or goals. If their dressing sense is good. Pet health. And the area they live in with rising crime levels. Did that list miss anything? Are those the things that we worry about too? Somebody else you add to a top 20 list. Would most of us admit that those 20 things are things we worry about from time to time too, right? Last week we studied the verses before this passage, and those verses were on choosing God as our master. And the question might be, if I choose God as my master and place my value and worth and source of security in heaven, who will take care of my daily needs then? Who's going to take care of it? If I have to give up those things, what's going to happen to me? question was most likely even going through our minds last week, and it was most certainly going through those who were gathered with Jesus on the mountainside. In many ways, Jesus in his passage directs his attention to the issue of worry in an everyday sort of way. In those areas of worry, we see him address the basic needs and and things that we need in life. And he says that our Father in heaven will care for them. Those basic areas of life are also very much what we saw play out time and time again in these list of 20 things. Dress, eat, finances, right? We see the same thing play out again. Think about that as Jesus begins to address those on the mountainside. And as he speaks to them about everyday realities around the worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you eat or drink or about your body or what you wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you even worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what will I eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear, for the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you, what you need. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble 
of its own. As we practice paying attention to this text, there's a few places in this passage that I want to discuss so we can attempt to explore, know, and understand this text in a way that will fully help us understand Jesus' intent and challenge to us. Worry is something that has the potential to distract us from trusting God with everything that we are. That is true for me. That is true for all of us. It is the reason understanding this passage and Jesus' challenges are of most importance to us. In fact, this is probably one of those sermons that we need to hear time and time again. Learning to not worry is something that we must continue to be discipled in, to be reminded of, to be trained in. Learning to not worry is really seeking Jesus with everything that we are, to trust him with everything that we have as individuals, as a church, as a community. Say that for both you and for me. Worry is something, I will transparently be honest with it, I struggle with just like you. Admit it to yourself because I'm admitting even my worry to you. It is an area in which Jesus really wants us to discover reliance in him and dependence on his spirit more and more. None of us are immune to worry, right? None of us are immune to worry. First, it is important to understand what Jesus means when he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Now, in this passage, it's really important that we pay attention to this word, worry. It's essential we understand it. There are some elements of worry that we have in life, and we could even say that they are good worries, that we can be worried about a well-being of somebody or the spiritual state of somebody. And while we call that worry, that is much more concern. When we look at the word for worry in a dictionary, it's interesting how it gets defined. It is defined as giving away to anxiety or unease. That's not ever a good sense. Worry. Giving away to anxiety or unease. Did you notice that word anxiety in there? How many of you, when you've worried about something, for example, either your health or someone else's, that you find your worry actually giving away, don't raise your hand, to anxiety or unease? When we find our worry giving away to anxiety, it's not a good thing. Think about what goes with it. The Mayo Clinic points out this as signs and symptoms of anxiety. Whole body fatigue, restlessness, sweating, irritability, racing thoughts, unwanted thoughts, excessive worry, fear, feeling of impending doom, insomnia, nausea, racing heart, poor concentrating, shaking. Then there's also panic attacks, night sweats, headaches. I'm sure we've all experienced this at some point in our life. Some way that fear and worry has given away to anxiety or unease. It's important to understand in this passage, when Jesus uses that word worry, it's exactly like how our worry gets defined. It's talking about anxiety. He's concerned that his followers of Jesus will be overtaken by anxiety, fear, and unease. And the word Jesus used for worry can even be translated more directly as anxiety. They, like us, could find themselves up in a huffy and anxious about everyday things. Listen to William Barclay reflect on this passage. The word used there for worry is merimenao, which means to worry anxiously. Likewise, Michael J. Wilkins points out, merimenao also 
expresses intense feelings of anxiety about issues of life, about the many less important things, or about the pressing daily matters of life. When you define this word in the Strong's Concordance, it says, it is the state of being anxious or troubled with cares. I love that word, troubled with cares. Let's be honest with ourselves. We can all identify that at some point we have been troubled by cares. Most of us experience intense feelings of anxiety around certain issues of life, both to important and unimportant things. Some of us stress over these certainly more than others, but we all stress over them more than we should. Amen? If this is the case, then we most certainly must listen to the next three things that Jesus is going to say about what anxiety feels like and how to overcome it. Interesting, Paul, another follower of Jesus, uses the same word that we see Jesus use on anxiousness. He, he goes on to write to his disciples and his churches in Philippi about this very same matter. And he writes, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The word that Paul uses there for anxious is the exact same word that Jesus says with regards to worry. The word is Mary Meneo that Jesus uses in this passage, that Paul uses in this one. This call to not worry is something we actually see show up time and time again in the New Testament. It is something Jesus and his followers learned. It is something they really wanted to get. And worry has a way of giving to anxiety and unease. And they were aware that it can distract our journey to Jesus. Again, Michael J. Wilkins writes, In his NIV application commentary, exactly what Jesus is trying to get at. He says, worry is inappropriate or wrong when it is misdirected, is in wrong proportion, or indicates a lack of trust in God. It is this latter sense that Jesus addresses here. It's important to understand what Jesus is getting at. He's making sure that our trust in God in our day-to-day life is solid. Anxiety has its effects on both our spiritual and our physical lives, and it changes us. This kind of anxiety doesn't only just make our heart race and our palms sweaty, it actually changes the way we respond to other people as well. And anxiety can make a person really be someone none of us want to be around, because they simply don't feel life-giving. Anxiety.org reports that those with anxiety perceive the actions and intentions of others with greater uh, suspicion. Their feelings are more likely to feel hurt. They tend to relate to healers with passive-aggressive, intrusive interaction styles. In addition, their styles of communication tend to be overly critical or overly passive. They can feel so directed by worries that they actually find it difficult to connect in relationships or community activities. It is important we discover a deep trust in Jesus, in our identity with the Father, because anything less than that creates anxiety. Anything less than that affects our trust in God, our trust in ourselves, and our trust with each other. Anxiety changes us. first reason Jesus gives them to not worry has to do with the Father's love that showers them with both value and worth. Listen to this. The first point which Jesus gives them and why they should not worry is because of his care for God's creatures. At this moment, you can imagine Jesus pointing to the sky as he's sitting on a rock. He says, look at the birds of the air. 
and not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. At this point, I like to imagine Jesus takes some bread and kind of crumbles it up in his hand and throws it as he continues. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who are you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Now, some of us are worrying what lunch is at home, what your wife has put in the crock pot. Others of you are worrying about where your family is going to decide to go out to eat. But in Jesus' time, people are worrying about, oh my goodness, are we going to get to eat? And here Jesus is talking about how the Father feeds birds. We're not birds. We're hungry. However, as we are looking at this, we realize worry was different for them. For these poor folks, it wasn't about if they could eat. It was about survival. And Jesus begins to tell them that even in regards to that, don't worry. Know and understand that at the core of the Father's heart, the heart of the Father in heaven, is love and care. He cares about these birds. Isn't he going to care about you? In fact, the point is that when Jesus tells them the Father loves his kids, in fact, he loves all of his creations. Why in John 3.16 we say what? Say it with me. For God so love the world. Right? The same reality is in Jesus teaching his passage. Are you not more valuable than a valuable worth and also value? Jesus is telling his audience that the heavenly father values them and gives them worth. Folks, the heavenly father values you. Now I want you to turn to the person next to you and say the heavenly father values you. Now turn back to the person that just said that and say it the same. The Heavenly Father values you. Now say to yourself with me, I can trust God to provide because the Heavenly Father values me. Jesus is speaking of his Father's love for his children and of their value in his love. Additionally, he's telling them not to worry because when their focus is right, God will be faithful to hold up his end of the bargain, and he always has done that throughout history. And Michael J. Wilkins writes again, the point is that when Jesus' disciples are responsible to carry out the proper ways of life as ordained by God, not worrying, not focusing on the things we've looked at the past weeks, God is faithful to carry out his end of the order. The real issue is that we don't usually actually trust God to uphold his end of the bargain. Because we don't understand that God has nothing but love for us and that he deeply values us and gives us worth. And in that void where we don't trust God, we see the onslaught of anxiety and worry. That's why Jesus gives us this object lesson. Now Jesus' audience knew David's Psalms well. They know that humans were central to who Jesus was. They were special to him. However, they probably also wrestled to grasp that just as we do. In the middle of this struggle, they couldn't really understand that. And as they say on the streets, the struggle is real. You can relate, right? The struggle is real. It is hard to think about a father who loves us in heaven because the struggle overwhelms us. When we struggle, it's hard to trust, it's hard to know value. And those who are called in poverty or anxiety find that their self-worth and value is in question, and it is in an endless trap with void of meaning. Now, I can admit when I struggle with anxiety, I too question my value and self-worth. It's called insecurities. How many have them? What about you? 
Jesus is instilling in them a value that they already knew, but they didn't believe. Now, Psalm 8, 3, uh, 8, 3 through 8, this confession of David they would have known well, shares with them the reality that humans are important to God, that they have value and worth. But it's hard to remember that. So I'm going to put it before us again this morning. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. God is concerned and caring for the birds. He's also concerned and caring for you. Rest in your value and worth that he gives, not in what you can garner for yourself. The second reason Jesus gives them to not worry has to do with the Father's gift of provision and purpose. And in this part of the sermon, we see Jesus kind of point, and he looks out in the grass. Now everyone's still kind of got their heads in a cloud watching the birds. But he starts to say, and why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? No, they don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Instantly, Jesus begins to talk about these flowers that are growing wild around them on the mountainside. Now, it's interesting. I read in a commentary that that hillside, which they believe Jesus was speaking on, is still covered with beautiful red and purple wildflowers. And there's even blue irises that have popped up on the hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Now, some of these have 10-inch stalks that don't blow easily. And they're beautiful to watch. As someone's eyes turn to the beauty and how they dress the grass fields around them, Jesus begins to intercede with this other story that they know well, too. Solomon. And everyone knows Solomon loves splendor. He liked looking good. He liked having good things. And Jesus wants to make sure that Solomon's splendor, that stuff he strives for, was nothing in beauty compared to these hills full of wild flowers. These flowers knew and they depended on God's provision and purpose. That's the point he's trying to get to his people. Solomon's wealth prompted a visit from the queen of Sheba, and his life became a proverbial success story. Yet God's provision for wildflower causes them to be more beautiful if one would only look. Solomon made himself beautiful and splendorous, and it got him attention, but nothing was as beautiful as the wealth and the beauty of these flowers. Interesting, as they begin to look at the flowers around them, and Jesus is pointing out that these flowers dress the grass, I imagine they begin to feel the anxieties of their day disappearing as he talked with such confidence. There was something about Jesus that felt different. He was contagious and life-giving. He knew the Father's goodness in ways that we didn't. It felt different to him. He didn't worry. And as they were admiring the beauty of the flowers and letting their anxiety go, he shifts his discussion to the grass which also surrounds them. Jesus goes on to say, if the flowers, if that, the flowers, is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? The flower's purpose was to look beautiful. It was to dress the field. They survived the wind. They survived in the fields because God provided for them. In fact, they didn't survive they thrived he created their chloroplast they worked out he worked out their systems for them to survive and even thrive now in his time 
grass was cut, dried, and bundled together each day, and they were used as fuel in stoves and fire ovens. Likewise, being thrown to the fire also was a common metaphor for end times, for human frailty and the failures of one's fortune. Michael J. Wilkins explains, if God's sustaining care extends to such a transitionary part of his creation, then those with eyes of effective faith will see the beauty of God's creation in contrast to human efforts at splendor and will learn daily how to follow God's guidance and how to trust in his gracious provision. So first we see that God is concerned with birds. He's also concerned with caring for you. Rest in your value and what it worth it gives, not what you garner for yourself. Now we learn that the eyes of effective faith both look to God as someone who provides purpose and provision, and there are great reasons to not be anxious, but there is one more. And the third reason Jesus gives them to not worry has to do with God's interest and involvement in their lives. Jesus goes on. Do not worry, saying what we eat, what we will drink, what will we wear. For pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. Now, Jesus certainly gets their attention in this passage. It's like me saying, why watch television? After all, isn't that the thing that atheists do? Those of pagan culture around them certainly believed in gods. They worshipped them just like the Jews did. They revolved their lives around them just like the Jews did. But they didn't believe their gods were interested and involved in their everyday lives. There was much to worry about when your God isn't interested and involved in your everyday lives. The only thing that they had to do was make sure they paid the right amount of sacrifices to the right gods to appease the gods to stop using people like pawns in a great dualist scheme. It's important to know that the word pagan here also means other nations. Jesus is telling his people, I want you to be differentiated. I want you to look different. I don't want you to worry like your neighbors do. I don't want you to worry like the pagans do. Jesus' point is that we should differentiate the light. This should differentiate the life of his followers because they don't need to worry because God is both interested and involved unlike any other God in their lives. He wants to be known. He can be known. And he even desires to make himself known through his involvements. We can rest in our Heavenly Father because of his love for us that brings value and worth, because of his love for us that brings provision and purpose, and because of his love for us, he becomes interested and involved in our everyday lives. This reality took a while for his followers to get. However, the more they hung around Jesus, the more it rubbed off on him. And Peter, perhaps one of the followers of Jesus that we think has the most problems with worry and anxiety, eventually gets this reality and begins to teach it to his disciples as well. And we see that in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares upon him, he writes, for he cares for you. Guess what? Cast your cares. The word care, he's using the same term, a verb version of it, that Jesus used in the same passage. We quote it to each other all the time. In my house growing up, it hung in our living room when my dad was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And I remember watching my dad lay on the floor as I looked at that verse and tried to justify how that worked. Now, I love how God's word translation translate this one. They translate it a little differently. Turn your anxiety over to God because he cares for you. Keep your mind clear and be alert. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion as he looks for someone to devour. 
in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants us to know and trust in our Heavenly Father in a new way, in such a way that we can turn over our anxiety. Our mind, our anxiety is actually the place where the devil and the world both love to attack, and for that reason we must be on guard. Now there are four quick things that from this passage I think we take away. First, we strive not to have a deficiency of faith. When, when Jesus tells them, oh, you have little faith, we know that's one of Jesus' favorite things to say. But the word that he uses there is actually a word that means deficient. Okay, He's not saying you don't have faith, not you who have no faith. He's saying those of you who don't have enough faith, those of you who have a deficiency in your faith, those of you who have a deficiency in your trust. In James 1.5, Jesus' brother writes, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask him. Wisdom can be translated as spiritual faith. Asking for more. Asking from Jesus' teaching, our good Father longs to pour out his blessing on those who ask for such things. A strong faith should differentiate us. It's important we find ways to overcome deficiencies. We take vitamins when we have deficiencies in our immune systems. We must find ways to take vitamins for our faith. Plus, we must seek the kingdom. In this passage in Matthew 6, Jesus gives us the biggest key to success in life. Seek first the kingdom, and all these other things are going to be added on to you, right? We must seek first his kingdom. We also must realize that we worry, uh, the, the more we worry, the more it affects us. And it does more harm than good. We must live into a reality that realizes worrying does more harm than good. Anxiety certainly has a diagnosable condition. And for some of us, it might be. 18 million people, no, 40 million people a year struggle with it. 18.1% of our population struggles with it, but only 34% of those seek medical help. However, we all live into that reality when we worry too much. And worrying does more harm than good. We can't change tomorrow, but we can trust in the one who can. We cannot change tomorrow, but we can trust in the one who can. Our trust and our dependence on God. With our day-to-day should differentiate us. Now in closing, I want to offer this. Author, pastor, and John Wimber writes this, and I think this might be true of some of us this morning. Because I had seen my heavenly Father through the lens of my earthly experiences, many of them hurtful, I had a distorted view of his fatherhood. When I heard the words, God is my Father, a variety of emotions and images came to my mind, some good and many bad. They were mixed in with biblical images of forgiveness, protection, acceptance, and love. But they were also mixed with feelings of betrayal, failures, and absence. As a consequence, I related to the Father inadequately. Jesus was my brother. The Holy Spirit was my counselor. But the Father was this exclusive removed figure to be avoided. The less I had contact with him, the better chance I had of not hearing his disappointment when he did come through. I was incapable of loving and trusting my Heavenly Father as he intended me to. And I missed out on what every human being needs. Deeply personal, fatherly love, protection, and care. I think some of us this morning are probably struggling with anxiety. Because we don't know what it means to experience a deeply personal, fatherly love, protection, and care of the Father. 
As a result, we avoid him. We don't believe that he's loving us with value. We don't believe he provides for us. And we don't believe that he actually wants to be involved in our mess. And T. Wright echoes, Jesus had a strong, lively sense of the goodness of his Father, the creator of the world. His whole spirituality is in many a mile from the teachers who insisted the present world was a place of shadows, gloom, and vanity. In other words, the teachers of Jesus, they were full of anxiety. Jesus separated himself. And that true philosophy consisted in escaping it and concentrating on the things of the mind. Where do we need to experience the goodness of the Father? I invite the worship team to come forward. And as we stand to sing this closing song, where do you need to experience the goodness of the Father again? Tell him. And for the rest of us, worry does not empty tomorrow of sorrow. It only empties today of strength.